Good morning, Green Tree. Will you stand for the call to worship, please? It's from Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Let's sing.
seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. 
us to hear and learn what you have for us this morning, Father. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Can you please greet your neighbor? Well, good morning. Good morning. morning. (laughs) Thank you. I've been away all week. Uh, I was uh, on vacation in uh, St. Pauli's Island. That's why I have this. I I have no shave policy when I'm on vacation. And how many guys are like that? Yeah, I see you. You're like that. But it is good to be back and with God's people, um, with the people of Green Tree Church. We welcome you in the name of our Lord. We If you're a visitor, we're really glad to have you. We hope you have a wonderful experience, not only of worshiping God, but also being with uh, with God's people. If if you've been coming, uh, you know, for 10 years, we hope the same for you. And we want to know that uh, that you are here this morning. So if you would take advantage of the pew attendance pads or the row attendance pads, we only have pews here. Um, Write your name. Just let us know that you were here. We're not using that information to sell it to some, you know marketing company. We just want to know more that you are here. Let us know as well uh, if you're interested in getting involved in some way or if you have a prayer request. Uh, We take all that uh, very seriously. Also, as we gather together for worship, we don't take a special time for an offering, but that doesn't mean worship isn't, uh, uh, giving isn't part of our worship. Uh, If you've brought an offering, we encourage you to to use those model churches in the back. One is in that corner, one is in that corner, and uh, drop your offering in those churches uh, when you leave the service later today. Um, And uh, those are our announcements, but uh, there is one other thing we want to do before we get to the sermon, and that is to acknowledge the fact that the Lord continues to add uh, to our number here at Green Tree. We have a lot of people who have become, recently become members, and we want to tell you about that. And before I, I invite them up here, I just want to say a couple things about, about church membership. Sometimes we, we wonder, well, you know, why, why do we have this membership thing? Isn't it, you know, it's kind of, we're sort of a commitment averse these days. Um, is this really something we should do? In fact, there's lots of church consultants who say you shouldn't do church membership because it scares people away. I get that about our culture, but I, I want to, I'm so glad that we celebrate when people say, yes, I want to be a part of these people. Uh, it's not a contract. It's not like you're, you know, signing away your firstborn when you become a member of our church. But it is a way of saying, God, you've called me to be a part of your people, and I'm saying yes. And we acknowledge that and we celebrate that uh, this morning. So those that are coming for membership, if I would invite you to come on up and stand here on the dais. I have some vows that you've already taken. Just go ahead and stand up and then, and then uh, look out at the congregation. But we, we all want to hear again what it is you've committed yourselves 
to and to celebrate um, that commitment. Um, the members that have joined recently, not all of them are here. I don't think all of them are here, but, uh, uh, but uh, Tony Bowman, who's there, uh, Mark and Mary Ann uh, Eversgard. Did I say that right? Okay. Willa and Becca Bain, they're right there. Um, ben and Megan Fellinger. I've said that. I know I said that right, yeah. <laughs> Ross and Brooke Massey, they're there. Ryan and Dana Dean. And there's a reason they might look familiar to you, but I'll let you guess as to what that is. <laughs> Karen, uh, Karen Morrow, who's not here. Uh, Janie Rickett, is that right? Pickett, sorry. And Karen Robnack is not here. She was at the earlier service. So she might have misunderstood when to come. First, we're so glad that you are a part of Green Tree. And we want to celebrate that. And we want these folks to know the commitments that you have made. So I'm going to ask you to uh, reaffirm those commitments. Do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God and without hope for your salvation, except in his sovereign mercy? Do you? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the Savior of sinners? And do you receive and depend upon him alone for your salvation as he is offered in the gospel? Do you? Do you now promise and resolve in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ? Do you? Do you promise to serve Christ in his church by supporting and participating with this congregation in its service of God and its ministry to others to the best of your ability? Do you? Do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church and to the spiritual oversight of this session? And do you promise to promote the unity, purity, and peace of the church? Do you? And I'm really glad that the child was participating and affirming these vows as well with us. Let me pray. Let me pray for these folks and pray with me. Father, thank you for all of these families that have been visiting and have said, yes, we commit to being a part of this church family. I pray you would honor those commitments and that, and that you would bless them, that we would be a blessing to them and that they might be a blessing to us. And as we love each other well, it would be a testimony to the city of Kirkwood, to, to the St. Louis region, that indeed your spirit is at work here, seeing how we love each other. That is the great testimony, Lord, that indeed you are at work in our midst. Thank you for them. Thank you for this opportunity to celebrate this. We give it all to you now in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much. You can, get, you can find your seats. I want to offer my welcoming voice to all of you who just joined today. We're really glad you're a part of us because we know that God will do great things in you and through you and we'll be blessed by who you are and what you do. <clears throat> well, today we get to take a trip into obscurity. Are you excited? Good, I hope so. Because that's where we're going. Actually, <clears throat> we are looking at those kings in the Old Testament that most of us haven't heard of or read about. And so we find that there's lessons to learn. In fact, what the theme of this is, is unforgettable lessons from forgotten kings. And this is the reason we do it. As it says in Romans 15, 4, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in Scripture and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Some of these stories are pretty rough. Some of these kings did some not nice things. But what we'll find is that even in the worst of them, there are opportunities for grace for them to receive that. We can see how God worked in each one of those. So let's meet them. These are the uh, roster of obscure kings, some of them more obscure than others. First of all, Rehoboam, he was uh, Solomon's son and lost the kingdom in three days. Great achievement. Then there's Jeroboam. He stole the kingdom from Rehoboam. And there's Ahab. He was the worst ever. And part of that is due to the great encouragement of his wife Jezebel. Maybe you've heard about her. Yeah. 
And then Jehu, among other things, was a reckless chariot driver. I mean, he was known for that. You could see him coming for miles because he was careening down these roads. And so that's, that's Jehu. And then Joash was a boy who was saved from his grandma's death squad by his aunt. Lovely way to start a life, right? And then um, Ahaz sacrificed his own son in worship of a false idol. Hezekiah experienced astounding miracles that you'll learn about when we study him in about seven weeks. And then finally, Josiah, who was a boy that God used to greatly reform the life and worship practices of Israel. So, what we know, though, in all of these kings was that they dealt with idolatry. It had an impact on them um, in one way or another. <clears throat> but you might also be surprised that idolatry is really relevant to now. We think, well, they were bowing down before these idols and so on. But there are other ways to look at what idolatry is, and we'll learn about that more as we go ahead. So, that's what we're going to be doing. And so we're going to start out with Rehoboam. And what we're looking at is the contrast that God puts in his word between the way of self, which Rehoboam exhibited quite upfrontly. You can say, is that a word? Upfrontly? I guess not. But we'll go with it anyway, right? Because I just said it. All right. And then the way of grace. So the way of self versus the way of grace. Now, as we get started, I want you to have a, something of a picture of what was the environment that Rehoboam grew up in. If you, if you see some of these, uh, these are artist renderings of what Jerusalem might have looked like in the time of Solomon, but it was a place of great riches, great prestige and power. Solomon was the greatest king known up to that time in the world. He had as I said, he had power, he had prestige and influence over nations around the area. He had money like crazy. I mean, they were, they were counting his gold in tons, basically. That's how much gold he had and used in his decorating. Yeah. Uh, so, <clears throat> but also, Rehoboam grew up in this environment of incredible privilege. There was nothing that was withheld from him. He, you know, he had, I'm sure, people that were around him all the time, might be like a kind of an entourage for a rock star, kind of that thing, you know, and he said, I'd like this, and somebody run off and get it. So that was his lifestyle, privilege, power, prestige. And in the middle of all that external, he also had the reality of living in the shadow of one of the greatest kings of all time, his father. But it's interesting to notice that his environment in the court of Solomon were multicultural because Solomon married women from the different kingdoms all around, all who served idols, all of whom God said to Israel and to Solomon not to do that, but he did. And what happened is he began to set up worship places for each of these idols so that his wives could do what they wanted in terms of worship. So not only did Rehoboam grow up in a multicultural, but a multi-faith environment. So that's a very strange mix of things. So he had a big fills, big shoes to fill. And so let's see what happened to him as Solomon died and he begins his kingdom. <clears throat> the word of God says, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, who tried to kill him, by the way, he returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and all Israel went to Rehoboam and said, your father has put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, come back to me in three days. So the people went away. 
Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people? He asked. They replied, if you will be kind to these people and please them and give them a favorable answer, they will be your servants always. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked, what is your advice? How should I answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young man who had grown up with him replied, the people said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. For this turn of events was from God to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Elijah, Ahijah the Shilonite. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel. Look after your own house, David. So all the Israelites went home. But for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. So, it's an incredible story how a man can lose a kingdom <laughs> in three days, but that's exactly what he did. And it's a part of his reality. He was so self-absorbed, so used to having everything the way he wanted it, that he figured that this could continue for the rest of his life. And when people said, no, let's, let's do things differently, he refused because he was so focused on himself. So the first thing we want to talk about is the sting of self-focus. Before that, though, we're going to do sermon in a sentence. Sorry about that. Got excited about going on. Sermon in a sentence. Thank you. Back there. Um, let's see that. Even though we act selfishly, God's grace surprises us and opens space for us to set our hearts on seeking God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you come into our brokenness. You come into our self-absorption. And you, by your grace, make space for us to set our hearts on you. I pray that you would be doing that in each one of our hearts today as we hear this word. And I pray also that you would um, grant grace to me and set aside my weaknesses and my sin so that they don't get in the way of what you want to communicate to your people. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's talk about the sting of self-focus. All that Rehoboam saw was power, prestige, and pleasure that should be his. That self-focus cost him 80% of his kingdom after three days of ruling. Now, that is quite an accomplishment to lose that much of your father's kingdom in that short of a time. But that's exactly what he did because of his self-focus. That self-focus kept him from paying attention to these things, to the desperate plea of the people of Israel. They said to him, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Taking that message and not and refusing to hear the sage advice of the elders that served with Solomon, he was able to listen to and be egged on by friends who grew up with him in the same sheltered, privileged environment. And they too wanted to keep that environment. So they said, this is what you do. Tell them you ain't seen nothing yet. If they want to know what true dominance is, tell them your little finger is bigger than your father's waist. If he scourged them with whips, 
scourge them with scorpions. That's what you had to say. You have to establish your dominance, and that will win the day. Well, that didn't win the day. This also, this self-absorption, kept him from understanding and seeing the unrest that was caused by forced labor. Let's see what happens as he does that. King Rehoboam set out Adoniram, who was in charge of forced labor, but all Israel stoned him to death. Rehoboam, however, managed to get into his chariot and escape to Jerusalem. There was what was seething underneath the people of Israel during the last years of Solomon's reign, and he couldn't see it because all he saw was his little privileged power environment. And it caused him the loss of his kingdom. That's a graphic, horrible event that speaks of the oppression and resentment and anger that being subjugated to that kind of harshness and demands, not only for your time, but for your resources so that others could live in privileged positions. You know, that has been the case in many societies today and throughout the history of our world. The privileged and those who have power often don't even see the oppression that their policies and practices create. And my prayer is that we, the people of God, would be able to keep our eyes open to the plight of the powerless and the marginalized. Because that's God's calling for us into this world. That he might not only see it, but then be able to find a way to make a difference and alleviate that suffering and that oppression that many people live with. So, after having found out that the kingdom was gone and, and realizing he hadn't seen things, he mustered 180,000 fighting men to claim back his kingdom. He says, I'm going to get them back. Now, here's two little tribes against 10 big tribes, and he still thought he was going to do well. Well, 180,000, that's pretty strong. But just before they set out to march against their brothers, the other Israelites, Shemaiah, the prophet said this to them. This is what the Lord says. Do not go up and fight against your brothers, the Israelite. Go home, every one of you, for this is my doing. So they opened the word of the Lord and went home again as the Lord had ordered. Now it says in, in introducing this in the scriptures that Shemaiah spoke not just to Rehoboam but to all the 180,000 men, probably wives and children, that were gathered to get ready to go to war. I'm guessing that if he had spoken only to Rehoboam that, that Rehoboam would have made the same kind of decision he made earlier. Let's go. But because he spoke in front of all those people, the guys who have their lives on the line to get this stuffed shirt king back into power, they said, do you want to die for that? I don't know. Do you want to die for that? I don't think so. God said, go home. Let's go. So they scattered very happily because it was a symbol of also God releasing them from the oppression that they had lived under for many, many years, for decades, really. So, um, that's part of the sting of self-focus. That's a stark story, isn't it? And many of us are wagging our heads thinking, oh, I, I, you know, I, that's terrible. What did they do? That was really bad. But, you know, maybe there's some of us who are saying, um, you know, I can be self-absorbed. Maybe just a few of us for a short amount of time, you know. That's part of my, my life. <laughs> Well, I too lived a life of self-focus. As a pastor, I was committed to protecting my accomplishments and reputation. It took a major catastrophe, not at the level of Rehoboam, but earth-shaking for me to shake me out of that. 17 years ago, my wife then asked me for a divorce. I didn't see it coming, caught me by surprise. 
and I fell apart. In the midst of that trauma, I made decisions that hurt my family, my friends, and my church. I was angry with God, and that anger continued for more than a year. How dare he, I thought. I'd been instrumental in starting more than 70 churches, and I'd seen a lot of people come to faith. He owed me. (laughs) Well, how little did I know, and how much did he have to teach me? But so the same thing happened with Rehoboam. When we are in the midst of that and we're in a broken situation, God surprises us with his grace. So let's see how he did that. We'll turn to Second Chronicles. Um, <clears throat> this is how God surprised Rehoboam. After Rehoboam's position as king was established, he had become strong. He and all Israel with him abandoned the law of the Lord. Because they had been unfaithful to the Lord, Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem in the fifth year of King Rehoboam. With 1,200 chariots and 60,000 horsemen, and the innumerable troops of Libyans, Sukites, and Cushites, they came with him from Egypt. He captured the fortified cities of Judah and came as far as Jerusalem. Then the prophet Shemaiah came to Rehoboam and to the leaders of Judah who had assembled in Jerusalem for fear of Shishak and said to him, This is what the Lord says. You have abandoned me, therefore I now abandon you. The leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, The Lord is just. When the Lord saw that they had humbled themselves, this word of the Lord came to Shemaiah. Since they have humbled themselves, I will not destroy them, but will soon give them deliverance. My wrath will not be poured out on Jerusalem through Shishak. They will, however, become subject to him so that they may learn the difference between serving me and serving kings of other lands. God gave them a very hard word. You abandon me, I'm going to abandon you. And what was the response of Rehoboam and the kings? They simply said, the Lord is just. They didn't whine, they didn't beg, they realized that his judgment was just, and they accepted it. And as they humbled themselves and didn't complain against that, God saw their humility. And then he offered them the surprise of grace. They really did deserve to be annihilated. But God said, no, I'm going to back away from that. I'm going to give you grace in this moment. You will not be destroyed, and I will soon give you deliverance. That's what God does for all of us. In fact, Paul talked about that same bold judgment that God gives to all who live since Jesus walked this earth. And he says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What will be your response? Will you agree with God's assessment that that is your just sentence? That is the reality of your brokenness? Can you say, as he speaks that to you, the Lord is just? Then the surprise comes. They had no hope. With that sentence, we have no hope. But since they humbled themselves, God did not destroy them. And as we humble ourselves and agree that we have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, then the surprise of grace comes through. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. If you've said to yourself, the Lord is just, and open yourself up to that grace, he will bring it to you. And whether that's the first time, and maybe some of that, that's true for some of you here, the first time you've ever acknowledged, oh, yeah, I need some help here. I'm in a bad place. Or maybe it's the thousandth time for many of us. Still, as we say that and we humble ourselves, God gives the promise of true relief. 
and true hope and true grace. The surprise came for me in the midst of my anger and sense of abandonment in the form of a woman that I met at a Super Bowl party that neither of us wanted to go to. Yeah, we were there kind of out of obligation for other people who were at this party. And uh, <clears throat> she came into my life at a time when I didn't like God very much. In fact, I was pretty angry with him and felt like he had used me up and did all this good stuff and then he, he set me aside. <laughs> oh, I had lots to learn. But it was through the smile of this woman and her evident faith that I saw the smile of God. <laughs> he had not abandoned me. He had not set me aside. Just like he smiled on the people of Rehoboam, God smiled on me and he drew me to himself. It was such a surprise. I did not deserve that in any way, but he showered me with grace. Thanks be to God. And that woman, that spark plug of a woman named Carol, and I have been now married for 15 years. So when we realize our brokenness and then God surprises us with grace, he gives us a new opportunity to change the way we do things. But the issue is, how do we do that? So one of the main complaints that God had against Rehoboam was what's up on the screen. You see, he had taken him all through this, but he missed one part of it. He did evil, that is Rehoboam, because he did not set his heart on seeking the Lord. That was God's evaluation of him. <clears throat> well, how do we set our hearts on seeking the Lord? It's not first by going and studying and finding all the resources and making a plan and trying to execute it. No, that is good, but that's not where it starts. It also isn't us setting our will and saying, I will set my heart, I will set my heart. I can do that for about five minutes maybe, or 10 if I'm in a good moment. And then my will begins to evaporate. I need something that comes from within. And that's where it begins. It begins with our heart. Um, Adele Calhoun who wrote the book, Spiritual Disciplines Handbook, says this. We bring our ache for change, our desperation to make a difference. Then we keep company with Jesus. Don't you love that? Keep company with Jesus by making space for him through a spiritual discipline. And there are many, many ways. But here's how we start. We start with noticing our longings. Do you have a hunger to do what's good? Do you have a hunger to know God more? Then if that's the case for you, it's a, it's a sign, it's a clear evidence that God is already at work within you. You would not want God if the Holy Spirit wasn't stirring you to open it up to him. A great friend of mine and a, a pastor in the, in the PCA had this to say. Remember the, the um, verse... Um, behold, he stands at the door and knock, Jesus standing at the door and knock. And then there's a picture, Holman, I think, is the artist, and here's Jesus holding up a lamp and knocking at the door, but there's no knob on the outside, right? And so how does Jesus get in? Well, you see, on the other side, the, other, the person behind the door is stacking up all the furniture and piling it up and making sure that Jesus has no way to get in. But what he didn't realize was that the, whole, the Holy Spirit snuck in the basement window and began to set a little fire in there. <laughs> That's the desire. That's the desire. And all of a sudden, the heat and the smoke come up into the house, and he, instead of pushing those things against the door, he's pulling them aside, pulling them aside, opens the door. Oh, thank you, Jesus. And Jesus says, I will come into him and sup with him, and he with me. That's the surprise of grace. And that's how we begin to set our hearts on 
and understanding him. So even the smallest flicker of desire is evidence. So as you hear this sense of God, you sense this God, this stirring of God in your heart, it's an invitation. Like mom gives you an invitation to come to dinner. Come to dinner. And so as a kid, you have this, this decision to make. Do I go and eat or do I stay in my room and stay hungry? That's not much of a decision, is it? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, that's God calling, by the way. <laughs> um, anyway, um, where was I? Okay. So what do you do at the feast? You, you eat the food that mom has prepared. Well, at the table of God, what do we eat? Well, God says, taste and see. How good is the Lord? Taste and see. We get to taste of him. How can we begin to do that? By remembering and rehearsing the good things God has done for you in your life today, but in the past. Not only for you, but what has happened through all of history, all the good things he's done. You can rehearse those and it, flame, it fires the flame within you. Um, Ann Voskamp, who wrote A Thousand Gifts, encourages people to think of three good things every day that have happened to them and thank God for them. And she and others who followed this find a fire because all of a sudden you begin to see things differently. Little things that you would not have noticed before, you begin to see, oh, God was at work here. I didn't notice that. God is over here. And what you see is this beautiful orchestra of events that God continues to wrap around you to draw you to himself. That's a glory. That's a glory. That's a beginning for how you can set your heart on God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I love that. You're our Father. You're so closely related to us. And yet, you're in heaven with all power and authority. So when we come to you and say, draw us to you, Jesus, you've stirred our hearts. We know you will answer that prayer. Enable us to sense what's going on in our hearts and to notice the things around you that you are doing that we never have noticed before. We ask for the surprise of grace and the strength to set our hearts on you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Will you stand in response?
salvation comes my way. When I cannot stand, I'll fall on you.
glad you all were able to make it out today and trust that you sense the Spirit of God working. And we hope that he will plant these words, this truth into your heart, that you can walk with it and experience more of him. Um, I want to remind you that we have the VBS starting this coming next day, Monday, yes. <clears throat> and so pray for all these kids that come that they might hear God's message and respond to it and that God would open up a space in their hearts for him. And then also pray for the leaders and the teachers and the helpers that they might have strength and grace and love to walk through this whole week. Yeah. That's important. So I um, also want to let you know that every week we have Stephen ministers here, and they are trained listeners, not advice givers. So if you have anything you want to talk about, come up and talk with those folks. If you want prayer, we have our prayer team up here also, and they will pray about any need that you bring to their attention. Hear now God's benediction. May the God of hope fill you with all joy, and peace in believing so that by the power of the Spirit you may abound in hope. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.